Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. This is Dr. David Kamnitzer. Most people call me Dr. David. And thank you for joining me today. I'm here with my special guest, Alex Hillman. And today we're going to be focusing on co-working. Pardon me, co-working. I don't know if you are familiar with co-working, but it's basically the idea of how to maximize the enjoyment and the effectiveness of more than one person uh, working together in a similar space. And um, I'm really excited about exploring this topic because it's something that is interesting to me in my own life as I explore my own personal and professional development. And also, I think the exploration of co-working will teach us a lot about who we are, about what we've been being, what we could be being, what's possible for us in being. So it's a, it's also a doorway to an inquiry that I'm very excited about. And I can't think of a better person to have this conversation with than Alex Hillman. So let me bring Alex into the conversation. Alex, are you here? I am here. Thanks for having me, David. Oh, my pleasure. And that was a wonderful introduction. All the things that excite you about co-working are things that excite me about co-working as well. Great. So uh, to give the listener a little sense about Alex and how he sees himself and what's important to him, I'm going to share with you his response to me when I requested that he send me a brief bio. So he starts out by saying that he had trouble writing this bio and that uh, a lot of bios seem kind of trivial to him. But he did want to convey something in this brief bit of text, which is he would like you to know that if he would, he would probably like you if he got to know you and that you should know that Alex believes in these three truths. One, true communities and great collaborations start with the foundation of trusting and meaningful relationships. Number two, learning is a part of everyday life and we learn best from each other. And three, do or do not. There is no try. Uh, and then uh, he goes on to give some uh, history about his co-working experience, which I'll let him tell you about. Some of the actual credentials, since I dodged the question in my actual bio. <laughs> right. He's best known for co-founding Indie Hall in Philadelphia, one of the first and oldest co-working communities in the world. Uh, he's shared details about Indy Hall's techniques and approach to building authentic communities through, uh, through often radical transparency and real-world stories. This has attracted business and community leaders around the world to learn from his experiences. He tweets at Alex Hillman, A-L-E-X-H-I-L-L-M-A-N, writes at www.dangerouslyawesome.com. Dot com, dangerouslyawesome.com. But the best way to find out more about Alex, including his clients, projects, and collaborations, is to start by introducing yourself. And uh, I'll have Alex give his contact information for introducing yourself 
toward the end of the conversation. So Alex, in these conversations, these are a little different than most interviews. They're in-depth interviews. We're not here just trying to talk about things, but we're actually having a conversation with the intention of actually presencing some things and actually maybe even opening up some new possibilities. So I have found that uh, it's really useful to start out these conversations getting to know Alex Hillman uh, before we get too into the details about co-working. So sure. I'd like you to take the mic for a while and introduce yourself uh, in the context of what we're doing today. Sure. So my my background for for since we're going to step away from co-working, which I agree is a, a great place to start. Um, and actually, I was doing a little bit of homework on you, David. And what I didn't realize last time we spoke is you're you're a, a chiropractor, among other things. Is that right? Right. I'm a holistic chiropractor and an ontological coach. So my my dad is was a chiropractor actually for uh, for twenty five ran a practice for twenty five twenty six years, so uh, I grew up in a family that also uh, had had a lot of common interests and and beliefs to what I what I found in reading about you, um, grew up in uh, in a community that was really supportive and and I think what's been interesting as I've grown as a professional. Um, I, I left uh, my home to to go to college at the time kids normally do. Moved to Philadelphia in 2002 to go to Drexel University uh, to pursue what I thought was what I wanted to do, which was to uh, I was going to get a business degree and then I was going to take my passion for technology and computers and systems and start an IT consulting firm and. Uh, what I learned through one of the cool things about going to Drexel and actually the biggest reason I chose Drexel was because of its co-op program. Learning on the job was very, very attractive to me. It's how I'd learned everything um, that I, I considered really all that valuable to that point. And I said, an education, if I'm going to pay for an education, I want work, actual practice to be a part of my education. And Drexel's co-op program is an amazing opportunity to do that. And it was the, the co-op program that actually gave me the opportunity to learn that the thing that I thought I wanted to do, which was build like an IT consultancy of sorts, was very much not what I wanted to do at all. Um, I was fortunate and unfortunate at the same time to get my first co-op working in IT for a, a bank, big financial institution here in the area, and quickly realized that if this was representative in any way, shape, or form of the kind of work that I was out to do, this was not what I wanted to do. This was, um, it's not that the work was actually really all that problematic. It was that the, the people I was working with, um, my, my direct team was great and probably the saving grace of that, of that six month co-op. But the people that I supported, the people that I ultimately was trying to help were so resistant to being helped. Uh, and so resistant to everything, like technology was, was a problem for them. And if it was broken, it was a burden. And I was just trying to make things work. And being in this adversarial relationship with the people who I was trying to help was pretty painful. And I was pretty miserable. And uh, if it wasn't for a great boss who I could approach and say, hey, I, uh, I'm not happy. <laughs> what else can I do that keeps me away from these people that are making me miserable? Um, I don't know if I would have lasted six months. But it was my second co-op at a interactive agency just outside of Philadelphia uh, that things started to turn a corner for me and 
the the thing was that even though I had a background in technology, I was not a programmer. I didn't really develop software. The idea of writing code day in and day out was not attractive to me. I think part of it was because I was a people person. I liked interacting with people, and the idea of interacting with a code editor all day long was just like yawn. <laughs> no thanks. Um, and some people do it, and they love it, and they're great at it. That's awesome. I didn't think it was for me. Uh, but I had a buddy who worked for this company called Refinery just outside of Philadelphia, and I said, your job sounds fun, Joe. Is it difficult? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he said it can be tough sometimes, but it's really, you know, you learn a lot, and you get to build things that people actually use, and the team that I work with is really smart, and you learn new things every day. And I was like, okay, those that's now you're speaking my language. I'd be willing to try and learn how to write some code if that's that's on the other side of it. And so I uh, I went in to interview for this co-op position as a, a junior developer, a junior web developer at, at this company. And I remember saying point blank to my boss, or my prospective boss, I suppose, um, I don't think I'm going to like this job. I don't really want this job. But I was really wrong about the job that I thought I wanted. So I'm willing to give this a shot if you're willing to give me a shot. And they did. And it was in that job that I learned a lot. And I was actually just reflecting about this yesterday because there was an article about the CEO of this company now several years later after the company had been sold. Um, but I learned a lot while working at Refinery about culture and team culture and company culture. I didn't know it at the time. I thought I was learning how to write code and I was having a blast doing it. But the the lessons that I was learning now that I realize I was learning was about the difference between teamwork, teamwork and teams who actually collaborate versus people who work together because they have to. And the difference between people who are motivated to sort of lift each other up and teach each other, support each other and better and people who, like I was describing in that previous job, um, you know, they're there to sort of extract something from you. And that sucks. Um, and so I worked at that company for my six-month co-op. And at the end of six months, I begged my boss, Steve, to let me stay and not have to go back to school. Because um, I had found this place where I learned things every day. I was surrounded by awesome people. And I was making money, which doesn't really get any better than that. And uh, they let me stay on, and I worked there for for almost a year and a half total before the company started going through some massive, really massively accelerated growth. Uh, and that culture that was so great started taking a hit. Um, the good things started to crumble, and uh, I, I ended up leaving there. Um, did another stint at another agency, then went out on my own as a freelancer. Freelancing was awesome, however... And it was awesome for the fact that I could choose what I was working on and who I was working with. Um, I could pick my clients. I could pick the projects. Uh, but the biggest downside to being a freelancer was that uh, I was by myself. I was lonely. Um, I had a limited set of skills. I, the skills I had were, were great, but many projects required more than just that. That's a benefit of an agency is you have all these different skills. Most people don't have an agency's worth of skills in their own brain. Um, so I started collaborating with some folks who had also left that agency, but I'd worked with previously and, uh, that's where things started evolving towards what would eventually become Indie Hall. 
Um, it's not that I was trying to open an office in any way, shape or form. It was that I was looking for coworkers without having to go back to getting a job. And I think this is something that a lot of people, uh, go through, uh, even when they have coworkers, they just don't like their coworkers. So they're looking for new ones. Um, and, uh, and I, I actually almost left Philadelphia to come out near you. I almost moved to the Bay area because that's where, you know, creative web people are, are supposed to be, or so I thought, um, and almost left Philadelphia, a city that I, I'd grown quite fond of. And when I, I decided not to take a job with a Silicon Valley startup, um, cause things were kind of dodgy with them and stay in Philadelphia instead. And, and reflecting on that, that really tough decision to not do what I thought was the right, you know, the, the obvious thing, you know, we've got these steps that we follow in our lives cause we think it's the thing we're supposed to do. And. I looked at the heart of that decision and said, no, I think I'm going to do something else. Even if I don't know what that something else this is, this is not right. And um, I said, why am I trying to leave Philadelphia? The city's great. The only thing it's missing is these other people. And if I can find these other people, then maybe I don't have to leave after all. And that is the path that led me to co-working, which uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. Wow, there's like so much in what you shared there. I, I, I really feel I could spend the next three or four hours talking with you, just unpacking <laughs> what you've just said. Um, let me indulge that a little bit. Don't, yeah, please. Don't worry, it's not going to be a four-hour conversation. This time, <laughs> but uh, I, I feel a need to uh, to go a little bit deeper and unpack some of these things. One of the things that struck me was uh, in relation to your bio comment about radical transparency, the uh, comment you made to the potential future boss really struck me. You know, I really don't want this job. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> and you know, to take it. So that that's one thing that really struck me was uh, that was a, uh, a real demonstration. And then another thing that struck me was when you were talking about your early work experience and um, not liking things and liking things and just, it seems like you had a kind of a priori ground of being that you had a right to like your work. And uh, you've probably had that for so long that it might not be at the top of your awareness that that's not that common. There are a lot of people that don't come from that place that they have a right to deeply enjoy their work. And so that's probably something I would imagine that has served you well in your life. Um, just knowing at a deep level that you have a right to joy and happiness that uh, may be a strength of yours that you're so close to, you may not appreciate it as much as some of us that, uh, that developed that over time. Well, uh, you know, you know, I, I mean, I appreciate you noticing that. And it's something that, I mean, it's, it's a, I believe it's a, a right. However, it doesn't come without work. Um, I, and I, and rather than frame it as a right, I'll, I'll frame it as a choice. Mm -hmm. You can choose to be happy at work or you can choose to be miserable. Um, and, uh, a, fr a friend of mine, um, who, whose name is Gary Vaynerchuk has this amazing quote that says, it basically says, stop doing stuff you hate 
because you can be happy and poor just fine. Right? So if you're going to be miserable, if you're going to choose between being happy and poor and miserable and poor, I'd rather be happy and poor. <laughs> um, there's, there's just not time to do stuff that you hate. And the worst part I think about what people don't realize when they do things that they that don't make them happy is it's not just you that it affects. It affects everyone around you. And think back to the story I was I was talking about at that bank. I think a big part of the reason that I was miserable at that job is because I was surrounded by other people who were doing things that they hated. So you take everyone else down with you. And I just feel like that's a, an irresponsible way to be a human being is to be miserable around other people who maybe they're trying to be happy, but you're taking them down with you. Right. But <clears throat> what I'm getting at is that you had a faith, even though it might not be, might not have been explicitly languaged. You had sure. a faith that there was a possibility of being happy and uh, financially abundant. Yeah, well, and I think that's the key is is I, I have a deep belief in abundance over scarcity. I didn't really I don't, maybe I didn't say that explicitly, um, but I, and I'm not I wish I knew where that came from. I don't know where exactly where I got that idea, um, although it's been proven time and again, a big part of my success is that there's it's a big world. There's always more to go around. Um, if you approach things from a scarcity mindset. That's where the idea of, you know, conquering the world comes from. And that's a very like ego driven way to approach things. Um, but if you approach things from a perspective of abundance, where there's not only enough for me, but there's enough for you too. And I don't have to worry about there not being enough for both of us. I think that's where the, the genuine opportunities for working together, becoming an actual collaboration, the difference between working together and collaboration in my, in my mind is Working together is not inherently an abundant experience, but collaboration, I believe, is an abundant experience because in order for collaboration to be collaboration, the sum has to be greater than the parts. And that is, I think that's like the definition of abundance, right? Right. But what I want to highlight here is my sense that you were coming from abundance and you may be, you may have come, like you said, you don't know where you got it. My point is, is that you probably come from abundance so long that uh, unless you think about it, you may not appreciate that that is creating a context that is generating a process for your reality that colors everything about, sure. about you and about your story and about your experience and about the opportunities that show up and how you respond to them and your interpretation. And what I wanted to, to say <clears throat> is that many, many people are still stuck in an egoic state of consciousness that's rooted in uh, usually unconscious assumptions of scarcity. So I'm, I'm wanting to highlight this context in which you live for the listener, because most of us are not trained to listen for context. Right, right. And um, so I really noticed that and I really admire that and um, obviously wanted to um, highlight that. And, uh, you know, 
another thing I thought about was um, how my own experience of groups and organizations um, are coming up for me as you're talking, that I've really had kind of a love-hate relationship with group energy. <laughs> and on one hand, I've been fascinated with the potential of networking and group synergy and have had some of my greatest experiences and sense of what's possible in groups. And yet, um, as a general rule, I tend to avoid them. And I realize that I tend to avoid them because uh, most groups in my experience have no possibility of true workability. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to the context question. Very much so, very much so. Plus, there's a whole a way of being and skill sets and values and maturity at a soul level and as a, at a human level that's required to even um, have the possibility of a truly working, what you call collaborative group. And, uh, and so I noticed that about myself and I'm very energetically sensitive and that works to my advantage in my work. But at the same time, it can be very challenging when I'm dealing with a group of people or I'm dealing with the general public and I've kind of designed my life kind of, um, with a semi-permeable membrane so that most of the time I'm either alone or I'm with people of, that I can choose to be with or not choose to be with. And I've been fascinated by this question of um, how to be, as an individual, how to be in relationship and how to be in groups in a way that um, honors individuality and at the same time honors the group life and the potential of the group consciousness and the group life. And um, in my experience, it not only in addition to all these skill sets, but it takes a tremendous amount of discernment and you have to get really good at being able to establish and maintain appropriate boundaries and you have to get really good at lovingly saying no, because if you're not free to say no, you're not free to say yes. And the other thing that it brought up with regard to boundaries and communication is that in my experience in groups, a lot of times one or two bad apples can spoil the whole ball game. And uh, very often people that get attracted to the possibilities of group energy a lot of times may not have the discernment or the skill sets or the self-esteem or the tightness of boundaries to the point where the squeaky wheel ends up getting the grease and everybody just leaves kind of uh, disappointed and traumatized and kind of goes back to their cubbyhole or they stay in a dysfunctional group. And so these are all things that came up while you were talking. And to me, what's fascinating, one of the things that I'm really want to draw you out about, about co-working um, after you define it, is maybe you could speak to some of the issues that I'm speaking to as you deepen the conversation about co-working. 
Sure. So, so you want me to define co-working first, and then we can we can dig in a little bit deeper into those those uh, those challenges of of being in a group. I think so because I think we're going to lose the listener if we don't have an agreed upon <laughs> understanding of what co-working is, and then I think it'll become obvious why I chose it as a topic for freeing the body, freeing the soul, and why. I'm really excited to be having this conversation, and I think it'll get clearer to the listener about, in relation to my opening comments about how it's actually an opening for inquiry into, into the into being, into what we've been being and what we can be being. Yeah. So uh, one of the interesting challenges with co-working is uh, it, it sort of grew out of an open source mindset. So in the technology world, it's not uncommon for technologists to build things and then effectively release the recipes. They don't just give away the product or in some case they charge for the product, but they give away the recipe. So if you wanted to and had the capability to, you could build it on your own. And the early folks that were um, developing what would eventually become a co-working uh, grew they, they were involved in sort of that world and that mindset um, and all of the the things that come along with it and so co-working could have become a singularly defined licensable idea that you would then pay to some entity to create a co-working space of your own but that's not how it went and 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 for better it allowed co-working to spread and evolve and become something that's flourished throughout the world, um, literally every part of the world today. Um, the downside is that it's very difficult to define it when it's something that's got so many evolutions and permutations to it. So I like to stick to a very simple definition. Um, and, and even in simplicity, there's a couple of aspects. One uh, is that co-working is a verb. It's a thing that you do. It's an action. Uh, and it's a way of – you've been talking about being. It's a way of being and a way of doing. Uh, part two is that it's a choice. Uh, co-working is an intentional thing. It's very difficult to co-work by accident. Um, the difference between being alongside other people in a cafe and being alongside people in a co-working space is – the intent, the choice to be around each other. In a cafe, it's happenstance. And you don't really know why that person's there, what their expectations are of themselves for that day, of you, their neighbor. Whereas in a co-working space, you know that everyone has chosen to be there and is interested in not just getting work done that day, but potentially interested in you and what you do. And so I think the simplest way to define co-working is the intentional choice to work alongside other people who have also chosen to work alongside you as a preference above being alone. And it's really that simple. And the thing I love about that definition is it doesn't define the kind of work you do, where you even do it. You can do co-working. You can be co-working without a dedicated co-working space. Um, you can co-work from a cafe simply by saying, hey, we're going to meet in a cafe. You could co-work in your living room. You could co-work in your office, David, if you had people come over um, and work there. It's a choice to work alongside people uh, who would otherwise be alone like yourself and instead be together. And then on top of that, you can build all kinds of really cool interactions and mindsets and opportunities and, and possibilities. Um, so I, I, how is that for a definition? Is that good? 
I like it. Are we talking about that you have to physically be together or is there virtual co-working as well or is that an oxymoron? This is a really good question and my opinion has changed, um, which I think should give you a, some perspective into uh, co-working and me, perhaps. Um, I, I hold deeply the beliefs that I have, but I'm also very willing to remain open-minded and have those deeply, uh, deeply held beliefs be changed. Uh, so I believe the phrase is deeply held beliefs held loosely. <laughs> um, so because, and it depends on where you're coming from. Um, but I'll give you a concrete example of co-working in a virtual sense. I think it, it's best when there's sort of a, a hybrid um, where there is some offline place for gathering uh, because it's much easier to build trusting relationships face to face. That's just a fact. As good as technology is getting, as great as you and I are able to you know, talk through the internet on Skype today and record this and share this with all the listeners that'll be listening in the future, we still get together in person to go to conferences and meetings and uh, retreats and things like that. So there's no substitute for face-to-face. -face. It's where trust is not just established but deepened. Um, however, over 70% of the members of Indie Hall are at our co-working space once a month or less. And they pay to be a member of this thing where it would seem on the surface that the value to get is I have a desk that I can go work at alongside these other people. But one of the things that we've done, and it's been in place since before we even had a dedicated space, is we have a really vibrant online community. We have both a, an email discussion list and, um, and actually more than one chat room. We use a tool called Slack that's become very popular over the last couple of years. And it lets you set up lots of little rooms inside of one big chat sort of a collection of chat rooms um, and those two places I I've come to believe and I don't think I would believe this as I hadn't seen it with my own two eyes uh, are equally first class gathering places for a community in between those face to face gatherings. You know, so, I'm really glad to hear you say that because as an educator, I'm very committed to the the model you're talking about, about working with groups of people and gathering from time to time together physically and within that space of trust and connection, having a lot of virtual connection. But of course, that centers around uh, one focal point of the teacher. This is a little more complex where it's more of a constellation of stars but to know that in your experience, that same kind of uh, real world, virtual world synergy is possible, even in a, uh, a, a world where there's not a uh, central focal point like a teacher or a mentor, to know that that is possible, that's, that's really exciting to me. It is. And it's been, it's been exciting for me, too, because it opens up the idea of co-working as for more than just people who need a desk, right? Uh -huh. So when we started, it was people who were working from home or from cafes that are, you know, sub suboptimal workplaces in one way or another in a lot of cases. Um, and, and one of those 
suboptimal components is lack of other people and that lack of context. Um, but we've got people who have full-time jobs. I think back to like the me that was at that job that I hated. If I had been a part of Indie Hall as sort of like my my coworkers that were not my coworkers, maybe I would have been able to endure it a little bit longer. Not necessarily that I, I personally would have chosen that, but there are people who are in – the people's life situations are so varying. And sometimes people stay in jobs because it's the right thing to do for their family or, or whatever the situation is. I pass no judgment on the choice. But it's really exciting to me that I can share the vibrancy, the happiness, and the support of the Indie Hall community with people who maybe are in a full-time job. Maybe you're not even in Philadelphia. We have members from all over the world. Um we had uh, people joining from from other cities just to be a part of what they see happening from a distance. Uh, we have people that join before. This is a, a really tough corner to turn. For a long time, people were of the mindset. They'd heard of Indie Hall. They've met members. They're friends with members. They want to be a member of Indie Hall. But they're stuck in a mindset of, I don't need Indie Hall because I have a place to work. And I would say – or they would say – uh, you know, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to start my, doing my own thing. I'm going to freelance or I'm going to start a company. And when I get big enough that I can afford an office, Indie Hall is going to be my office. And I would always say to them, why would you wait? Why would you wait to become a part of a community that's going to help you get to that goal until you get to the goal? Well, I'm really glad I asked this question because yeah. we could have gone this whole conversation and myself and other people, I think, would have just defaulted to the assumption that it has to be oriented around physical bodies being in the same physical space. And as you mentioned, even though that's a part of the mix, uh, the possibilities that open up from my question and how you responded to that question are really, I mean, my cells are tingling. It's really, <laughs> it's really exciting. And uh, what I'd love you to do is is to continue to share about whatever you want to share about co-housing. And if you can weave in the things that I was pointing to earlier about, yeah. about the, the importance of being able to say no and boundaries and the skill sets and how, and, and the issue of even the boundary of who is admitted and how they're admitted and how decisions are made. I mean, it, we could we could literally talk for hours, but if you could we just could. kind of <laughs> just kind of uh, be like a jazz musician here about co-working, but um, see if you can weave in some of the things that really I, caught my eye. I absolutely can. So one of the common things between an online community and an offline community, or this hybrid that we're talking about, is that in both cases. It's a mistake to just drop people in a room or even expect people to show up in that room on their own without some facilitation, right? Uh, and I think that's what, what you were talking about before, David, where those group dynamics go wrong is uh, you have to anticipate the spectrum of comfort and abilities and, and uh, of all the people that are involved. And it's not that you're trying to get them on the same – level of ability, but some someone or some group of people needs to help. 
uh, and help move things along. And the practice that uh, we've developed for this, both online and off, uh, we've adapted uh, a term and a technique called tumbling. Are you familiar with tumbling? No, I don't know that word. Tumbling, T-U-M-M-L-I-N-G. Tumbling and the person, the, the performer, a tumbler. Um, and so I like to describe how, how this facilitator works um, in contrast to uh, another type of facilitation that maybe is a little more uh, – maybe a little more in the direction of what you're describing where you know the, the teacher is sort of the center and the people are drawing – uh, being drawn towards you and you have some degree of control and understanding of the entire thing in these network effects. I actually the constellation, the way you described with that, I think is spot on because it's things of different levels of, you know, brightness and distance and, um, and all these sort of bodies moving around. And to think that a single person could, uh, could move and understand all of them at once is, um, simply, I don't think it's fair. Tumbling, uh, as I was saying, I like to look at in the contrast of a cruise director. So if anyone's ever been on a cruise, like cruise ship, a cruise vacation, there's a, many, there's thousands of people on the boat, hundreds of crew members, and there's usually a person or a couple of people who work together to direct the cruise. And what that means is they're running a schedule of all of the activities, all the things that you can do. They tell you where you can be, where you should go next. If there's, you know, if there's a dance party in the club, the cruise director is usually the first one out on the dance floor with a silly hat on and a noisemaker trying to get everybody excited about coming onto the dance floor and other variations of that approach. And that's sort of an extreme <laughs> in many ways of this style of facilitation. But if you think about a way a lot of people facilitate groups, it's like that. They make themselves the center of attention to try and draw the group closer together. And the problem with this, and the cruise director metaphor I love because it highlights this so perfectly, is it's not sustainable. A cruise director has so many stations to hit throughout their day that maybe they're doing that dance floor thing that I was talking about before. They've got some people out on the dance floor, but now the you know the, the timer goes off and they're watching. They've got to run off to the next station. What happens as soon as that cruise director moves on to the next station from the disco? Most of the people who have come onto the dance floor are going to go back to their corners, back to their comfort zones, just talking to the people they already know. And all the work that that cruise director did sort of goes, you know, the, the, the energy goes back to stasis, uh, while the cruise director is working on the next station and the next and the next and the next and the next. And the only time the cruise director's work is really being truly effective is when the cruise director's in the room. And the tumbler as sort of the, uh, the opposite approach works with softer hands. The tumbler works with curiosity rather than attention. And the way the tumbler would work, and the a tumbler, the practice of tumbler and tumbling was born out of uh, these Jewish communities in upstate New York that would throw these big parties, you know, weddings and family gatherings. And they would hire a tumbler to come and facilitate the social interactions of the party. Effectively, a cruise director, except not. And the difference between they, the, the cruise director and the tumbler have the same goal. It's to get people interacting with each other. 
the difference is, is that the tumbler is going to start at the edges rather than at the center. And this is where your constellation metaphor, David, comes in perfect. Because imagine, uh, imagine a party tent, uh, you know, in this big field in upstate New York, and your job is to try and get people sort of more connected, more towards the center of activity and things like that. But you'll notice, and this is the case in basically every social setting I can imagine, is that the people that are happy and comfortable in the center of attention, and there's the people that are out at the edges, the people that go sit at the table the furthest from the dance floor. Maybe they sit by themselves, they sip a glass of water, they're playing on their iPhone, but they're generally by themselves or maybe with one other person. But they've sort of closed off. And what a tumbler would do is notice that person by themselves, go over and say, hey, what's going on? I'm Alex. And start a conversation. And the specific style of uh, conversation that that person, that tumbler is going to lead with is one with a lot of questions, a lot of inquiry, a lot of curiosity. And this is something I think will be very resonant for you, David. The, uh, the intentional approach of leading a conversation with questions and not just like questions to, for the sake of asking questions, but with genuine curiosity, I think we're wired to feel that. When we feel like someone else is curious, it feels like they care. And in many cases, if they actually do, that starts to establish a little bit of trust. And that dialogue can continue and I can find things out about this person and maybe who do we know that we have in common or what interests they have or, you know, if you're not out of the dance floor, clearly dancing is not your thing. What do you like to do? Oh, you like, you know, what's your favorite? Oh, we're listening to this music. What's your favorite, uh, you know, jazz musician? Finding out things that we have in common or maybe we don't even have in common. Just finding those little nuggets about what makes you you. And then through establishing that little bit of trust, the tumbler can then invite that person a little bit closer to the action and say, hey, I'm going over to the bar or to the, you know, the, the buffet to grab a little snack. Would you like to come with me? And as we're crossing the party, I'll bump into somebody else who I've had the same kind of interaction with earlier in the party. And I know that the new person and this person I was interacting with earlier, they have some things in common because I've talked to them both and I learned things about them. And I can say something like, you know, why don't you guys chat for a minute? I'm going to go grab us some snacks. I'll be back in five minutes. And the key here is not to expose what I know that they have in common, not to sort of force them into a conversation, but instead to invite them into a conversation and let them discover what they have in common on their own. Because the difference between them discovering that common bond and you telling them what the common bond is and hoping that that's something they actually want to talk about is tremendous. And what's cool about this, what's cool about this entire process that I've described is when that conversation heats up, when those two people really start getting to know each other, it's a, it's like a snowball rolling downhill. It's got momentum. And each of them becomes almost like a mini tumbler of their own. They're going to start asking questions and connecting with that person and building a little bit of trust. And all like this entire process hap can happen over the matter of minutes, really. Now, I've sort of drawn it out in, in a lot of detail. Um, but in a both a co-working space and in an online community, in any of these group dynamics, you're talking about group projects or group settings, there needs to I think this the elements of this approach can be done uh, and and are best when they're done 
distributed. So it's not one person's job. So it might be your job or maybe not even a formal job, but it's part of your style to lead with lots of inquiry. But what changes when the thing that you're trying to do is not just get people to participate, but trying to get them to lead with inquiry, trying to get them to be curious about the other people. And so a lot of what we do, both in the online community and the offline community, is trying to tease out those conversations, trying to be really subtle about it. If it feels mechanical, people can tell. But whether it's, you know, I'll give you a concrete example with the online community, um, although it's something that absolutely works offline as well, is when people introduce themselves. When someone joins our community, one of the first things we want to do is, you know, is tell them, hey, you know, here's some places that you now have access to. Go in, take a look around, see what you see, see what you're interested in. But before you go too far, just announce yourself and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm Alex. I'm new here. And what we what we want is for them to do that ultimately because it's better that they do but we we also want to have them introduce themselves in a way that ultimately a tumbler would a way that would invite more conversation so instead of just saying hey i'm alex i'm new here because what kind of response can you really get from that other than welcome it's nice to have you there's not a lot of dialogue starter in there we encourage people to introduce themselves on a couple of prompts uh, one of the prompts is, you know, why did you join? Why are you here? What are you hoping to learn? What are you hoping to share? Another prompt is, you know, where, where do you live? Do you live in the city of Philadelphia? Do you live in a certain neighborhood? Where have you lived before? Where would you like to live? Location is such a big part of people's identities. And so just getting them to share a little bit of that, um, goes a long way. And then the third prompt is, uh, what's something that somebody probably wouldn't guess about you just by looking at you or, or maybe even knowing what your work is. Maybe you won an award or you've got a hidden talent or a secret hobby that you want to share. And the thing that all these questions have in common is they're sort of like automated tumbling. They're asking a question that's going to get someone to share something about themselves. But when they do that in the open, when they do that in a group setting and when the rest of the group is already tuned in to be to being curious – you're basically giving fuel to this conversational fire where people can actually learn what each other care about. And it's going to happen before they're talking about their work, before they're talking about, you know, the the menial stuff that shows up in conversation, the what about the weather, what about sports, what about politics, the stuff that nobody really cares about. So we circumvent that stuff entirely and we try and get people talking about the stuff that they actually care about and that makes them them as early as possible. And some of that is one-on-one -on -one facilitation. Some of that is are things that we can actually automate um, in, in terms of you know, suggesting people doing things uh, at certain sort of points in the, the life cycle of becoming a member of, of our community. And one of the best parts about it is, is someone who posts that introduction and they share little bits about themselves and they get a warm reception from the community that says, you know, we're interested in you. Tell me more about that thing. I have that interest too. I've always wanted to learn more about that. Or let's go get lunch and talk more about it. That person is going to be so much more likely to contribute to the conversation a second time because they were met with a warm reception the first time. And when some, when the next new person shows up and does the same thing, they're going to remember consciously or subconsciously the warm welcome that they got and they're going to go out of their way to pay, to pay that forward. And so again, you're setting off this, this mechanism, this 
snowball rolling downhill of a warmth of a reception of a genuine care and interest in each other. I think that's the thing that's missing from most group dynamics is the only reason you're in that group is happenstance or because you think you're trying to get something out of each other. And that goes back to that scarcity versus abundance thing is you have something, I need it. Doesn't breed very positive interactions versus I have something and I want to share it with you as the starter breeds incredibly productive, abundant conversations and is a totally new foundation for starting relationships. It's beautiful. Um, Thank you. So um, I just want to have you keep going in terms of uh, I'll ask you some questions that might help the listener to kind of get sort of a, uh, deepen the hologram in terms of their understanding of co-working. So, um, so what would be some indications, like if the listener is listening here, what would be some indications that they might be a good candidate for co-working or co-working might be a, a good fit for them? Yeah, that's a really good question. The, if you wake up in the morning and several hours pass, and you realize that you haven't actually had a conversation with a human being yet. And maybe that's not so good for your productivity or your creativity. Um, and maybe this has been the case several days or weeks or months in a row. Uh, you might be a good candidate for co-working. Even if you've, like I said, even if you've got a comfortable place to work, the main reason to want to become a part of a co-working community is to be around other like-minded people. Um, and I was having a conversation with somebody this morning about there's there's a sweet spot where uh, of, of like-mindedness where we have maybe some common values and things that we care about. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we do the same thing. It doesn't mean that we're in the same profession. So you actually benefit greatly from the diversity of other people in other industries doing other kinds of work where even if they don't deeply understand your business, it doesn't mean they can't help you. In fact, sometimes people who don't deeply understand your business can be the most helpful because they see things from such a different perspective. And that shakes things loose for a lot of people. So if you're, if you're a curious person, if you feel lonely at all in your work, if you want to learn, if you want to get better at what you do, I like to think of co-working spaces in a lot of cases as sort of a modern guild in, uh, in medieval times, I suppose. I don't actually know when guilds originated of the medieval times makes sense. Um, craftsmen and women w would be a part of a, a guild of people that would practice their craft for the sake of getting better at it, because there's a big advantage to being really good at what you do. You can make more money, you can be in more demand, have more customers, be happier, be more successful, however it is that you define success. And I think co-working spaces in their best incarnations provide a lot of the same things. It's a desire to succeed, but again, I think it comes through that lens of abundance where we're gonna succeed together. The rising tide's gonna raise all ships. If you're the kind of person who uh, gets worried about competition, a co-working space might not be for you. And you may have some work to do before a co-working space is a place that's actually going to add to your repertoire. If you look at 
other people's skills as things to take rather than opportunities to collaborate, you might struggle in a co-working space because people are in a co-working space tend to be good at what they do and they don't like being treated like a commodity. So, you know, when the when the startup idea guy shows up and says, I've got an idea, where's the developer who can help me build my idea? The developers in the room, the designers in the room, the writers in the room are like, hey, buddy, I've got my own ideas and I'm busy building those. So what have you got? Um, so being prepared to come in with with more of a, a, a generous and a, abundance approach tends to you you get more. Um, I want to say one last thing on the point of curiosity. Um, if you go into a co-working space uh, and you have a very specific expectation of what you're going to get out of it, I can say without a lot of hesitation that you're going to get a lot less. I would try and go into a co-working space, again, curious and open-minded and say, what can I give to this experience? What can I learn from this experience? And sort of be willing to explore. The people who show up at Indie Hall not really sure what it is that they want to get, but they know that they want to get better at something, they tend to not only get what they were sort of hoping for, but they get a whole lot more because they don't have all those blind spots on either side of the sort of tunnel vision that comes from wanting a very specific thing from an experience. But the kinds of people who can work in a co-working space run really every industry you can possibly imagine, including ones that you might not expect to find in sort of an open collaborative community like this, including lawyers, uh, including uh, people who work in academia, including people who work in the sciences. And then we have people in all kinds of creative industries and film and music and design. And we have full-time fine artists um, and people that work for nonprofits, people that work in real estate. It is everything. And the really rad thing about that is, you, again, it starts feeling like a little bit like a village. You get the diversity of what everybody does and everybody can contribute to everybody else. There's no one smartest person in the room because everyone is the smartest person in the room at their very specific thing, which is a, a really pretty powerful place to spend your day. So once someone identifies themselves as a good candidate for co-working and they want to explore various co-working options, I would imagine that there are functional issues and there's also issues of the particular values and mission for that particular co-working space, uh, assuming that that space has reached a maturity level that that's defined. Uh, I know when I started doing some research that led to this interview, and I was looking at, well, gee, if I wanted to be part of a co-working space, and I started to explore what was available around where I live, one of the things that surprised me and I was disappointed about because I work in the healing arts is when I was looking at the private office spaces that are available for rent, they all seemed geared more toward uh, office work and conference work. Yeah. Uh, in the ones that I looked, um, they weren't very friendly toward the, toward the person in the healing arts in terms of having a space, even if it was modular, that could be put back when we're done, I didn't get a sense that it was designed with someone like myself in mind. And so, you know, that's an example of a functional issue where 
you know, if I was going to see clients or students or patients, most of the co-working spaces that I checked out would not be appropriate. Yeah, and co-working is still a really a very young thing. Um, you know, the sort of inception uh, timeline starts around 2006, so we're coming up on 10 years, which is both a good amount of time and also, again, I think it's a very young thing. Given that it was born out of sort of a technology world, there's a lot of biases uh, still left that are being worked through about you know the expectation of mobile workers. What does it mean to be a mobile worker? And the assumption is, well, you must work on a laptop. You're a great example of someone who you could, you have mobility to your work, but the need is different. Um, and so I think that's that's something we're still going to see evolution uh, towards and from and and. It's frankly, I think it's just going to take some time. Um, but I think it's really valuable for folks like yourself to show up and ask those questions because until it happens, it remains a blind spot for for a lot of people. Uh, the expectation of who could be looking uh, looking for this sort of opportunity and why is uh, is still very, very much in development. Now, how conscious. Uh, like to what extent have do you find different co-working communities have gone through the time and the care to come up with uh, and actually language a mission statement that clarifies the mission and the values of that particular co-working space? <sighs> Man, I wish it was more. <laughs> Can you hear the disappointment? Um, yeah, it, it, just, <laughs> it just sounds like it's. The message I'm getting is that this is a babe. Yeah, it's uh, well, and this is again growing pains in a way. Um, I think co-working has at a point where there we've we've passed into mainstream uh, enough where we've also attracted opportunists and people that are just going to go through the motions. And are you familiar with cargo culting? No, I don't know that word either. So I'll explain it for you and for the listeners. So cargo culting uh, is a term that was uh, derived from post-World War II. Um, I rather during World War II, uh, there were some U.S. bases that were built in these uh, these remote islands that were previously inhabited only by native you know, tribes, people, and things like that. Um, but us being Americans, we landed our big planes on these islands and, and took them over, turned them into bases uh, and things like that. And along the way, introduced these native populations to things like weapons and drugs and all kinds of other things that uh, irreversibly changed their way of life and often not so much for the better. But what was interesting is when the war ended and, and we left these bases, these native tribes were left um, with disease and addictions and um, even exposure to new food sources and things that they just didn't understand. And worse, they didn't understand where they showed up from in the first place. Because you have to realize that a, a native tribes person who's never seen, you know, white-faced people before sees these giant metal birds come out of the sky, little white men come out and then load up their island with stuff they've never experienced before. Of course they're not going to understand it. And so when we left – they had to use the, their best understanding to try and bring back the stuff. And they created these ceremonies and these rituals where they would build giant effigies out of straw and trees that looked kind of like airplanes. And they would set them up on the, on the ruins of the runways, hoping that it would coax back the giant metal birds. And they would do these dances 
that looked a lot like the air traffic controllers moving the, you know, the, the lights and things like that. And I tell all this in context of co-working because the natives were recreating the things that they saw, the superficial elements of the experience, hoping to get the thing that they didn't really understand where it came from. Right. And this is happening in co-working. This happens in every industry, but it happens especially as industries are young and maturing. And when they hit that mainstream, there's a flood of people who see the surface level stuff and replicate it without a better understanding, without really any understanding or intent or desire to understand the underlying mechanisms of why and how they just sort of see the surface level what. And you know, so I totally, I totally relate to that because I notice in my own life being a cutting edge kind of person and kind of a practical visionary I notice that my energy is really high and strong when I'm helping to birth a new possibility into existence. But when it gets to the point in the dissemination of that innovation where it reaches that point where it starts to get watered down, I lose interest and I tend to, it's there's like there's something profane about it. And I find I lose interest and I tend to release it and it's not right or wrong, but I tend to kind of go on to the next thing because I don't feel like I'm the person to take that to the next level because that's just not where I enjoy being. So I I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting place for me to be because on on one of the things, one of the comments I get from my friends in, in the co-working world is um, that they don't understand how I can keep saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over. I've been beating the same drum of what makes co-working actually work, especially in the presence of people who clearly don't understand where they're really just trying to, you know, they set up an office space, an open floor plan office space with a bunch of desks and they go, okay, everybody, you can come use it. And they wonder why it doesn't work. Or even if they do get people to show up in this space, there's a big difference. And we talked about all the work that goes into it between getting people in a room and actually getting them to interact with each other. Totally different, totally different realm of work. And when you don't have that interaction, when there's no sense of connection or relationships between the people, what, what you end up with is turnover. People come and then they leave. And that's not only bad for business, it's actually bad for the community because if people perceive that when new people show up, they don't stick around very long, it, it hurts. And it hurts the willingness to share and trust and, and, and again, be generous because you just – it feels like why be generous to that person if they're just going to go in a, in a few weeks or months? Um, so I, I'm a bit of a broken record for a handful of very specific things in the co-working world um, that sometimes I'm, I'm met with opposition, although anyone with, with a, a, a logical bone in their body looks at the opposition and goes, you're just being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian this actually does make sense. Um, and I think when you're, when you're, like you said, when you're leading something new that a lot of people don't understand, be prepared to repeat yourself a lot and don't get frustrated because just because you've said it a million times doesn't mean that the person you're saying it to has ever heard it before. And so I need to be willing to show up to every new person who's got a question. If someone's taking the time to ask a question, I can't assume that they've gone out and done 
the eight years of work and research that I have. Instead, I can show up and say, hey, it's awesome that you're here asking questions. Here's a couple things that you can read to help you get, get you started. And then we both win because they've got something that helps them with their problem. And they see me being someone who is a part of them discovering the answer. And we again, we both win. Um, it's You have to be relentless in, in that way. Um, but it's the kind of relentlessness that I think is worth it because I see it pay off uh, where people – uh, you know, they they follow the advice, they take the time to understand. Back to your question of the people who articulate, you know, a common sense of purpose, whether it's a mission statement. I actually think it's, you know, it's a little bit deeper than that. Where I think there are people who do that, where they'll say, "This is our, what our mission is," but they're speaking on behalf of their community. This goes back to the difference between the cruise director and the tumbler. It's not the person who started the co-working space's job to define what the mission is. It's their job to bring people together and for the community to define what the community's mission is. And that's a very different approach to things than a lot of people are used to leading. Uh, and so we've tried to create, you know, again, tools and techniques and examples to show people how to do this. And yeah, it's work up front, but everything is work. So the question is, is do you want to do the work up front so that you can reap the benefits of having an amazing group of people around you who who actually care and support each other and therefore you, or do you just want a group of people that are trying to sap the life out of you and your day and your workspace and each other? I want the former. You couldn't pay me to be in the latter um, because otherwise I'd just go get a job. Well, you're preaching to the choir here. Yeah. But uh, I get it. So um, I have a couple more questions and then I'd like to move toward wrapping this conversation up. Is sure. that okay? That sounds great. So two questions. Feel free to take them in any order. One is, uh, who have been maybe one or two of your major, major, major mentors and the influence they've had on you? And number two is, what's on the cutting edge for you these days? What are you most excited about these days? I love these questions. So I'll take the first one first. Uh, major influences. Uh, I'll give you one, and uh, I can give you two. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not a kind of person. Like, actually, let me back up. I didn't really watch sports growing up. <laughs> Why does that matter? I think a lot of a lot of people grow up having like athletes as heroes, maybe, um, and. I, I never had that. And so it was weird. Like for a long time in my life, someone said, like, who's your hero? And I'd be like, oh, I don't really know. Um, and so I, I finally, I think, come to an answer of, of two heroes that I have, two people that have inspired me tremendously um, and who's who I think about when I'm trying to figure out who I want to be and how I want to be. And they're two very different kinds of people, which I think is important. One of them is a woman named Kathy Sierra. Um, Kathy is a an author. Uh, she's a teacher. She's a programmer. Um, she created a series of books for a technology publishing company called O'Reilly years ago, and the books were called the Head First series. Um, it was the Head First approach. So she didn't just write a book. She created an entire approach to teaching people how to write software. She looked at all the software books and said, why are we teaching people how to write software this way? This doesn't make any sense. And she created an entire new way. Um, 
Kathy also has a new book that just came out called Badass, um, also published by O'Reilly. Uh, and I highly recommend. It's tremendous. The subtitle for Badass is Making Users Awesome. What's the main impact that she's had on your life? The reason that Kathy is my hero is because Kathy taught me how to think about how other people think. Okay. So Kathy's entire approach, everything that she's ever written that I've read, has been sort of a systems look at what goes inside goes on inside people's heads and how and what it takes to understand what other people are going through when they're trying to learn something, when they're trying to do something. And we spend a lot of time surrounded by people that are trying to learn and do things with no understanding of what they're going through. And I think Kathy's lessons have taught me how to listen closely and truly empathize with people, even if they're in a very different, and I would say maybe especially if they're in a very different place than me, and really try to understand how they think and how they feel and what it's like to be them. And I just can't recommend Kathy's stuff enough. If you like, if you're a person who's trying, if you feel like everyone around you doesn't make sense, try and read Kathy's stuff because it's eye opening um, and, and truly tremendous. The, the other hero that I'll, I'll mention brief, briefly, and I say very different because it's very different is uh, Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl is the lead singer and creator of the band Foo Fighters, which is one of my favorite bands. And the reason Dave Grohl is a hero of mine is because he is he's a rock star in the truest sense. He and his band play for arenas, for stadiums of tens of thousands of people. But you can tell that Dave would be just as happy playing for an audience of one. He cares so much about the music and more importantly, the people he's playing it for. And it's so genuine and it comes across every in every way. I've seen that. I've seen them play small shows, I've seen them play big shows. Nothing changes. It's still Dave trying to connect with every single audience member. Um, and, and I think this was reinforced for me recently. They, they just did their um, they did the most recent album called Sonic Highways, and they released a complimentary vi uh, 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 TV series, like a do documentary miniseries on HBO by the same title. Um, and it was every episode, Dave Grohl was meeting his musical heroes in different cities and the music scenes around the world. And I felt this connection where I, I, I was, I felt affirmed in that he was still so, what literally one of the biggest rock stars in the world was still so excited to meet another musician and talk shop and learn their story. And not that I'm anywhere near Dave Grohl's status of being a rock star of my industry, but I have so much respect for someone who can get that big and still remain that humble. Um, that is a massive influence on me uh, and something that I hope if I ever even become a fraction uh, of the, the success that he has been to, to stay that grounded and connected to the people that, that I need to connect with and care about. That's great, Alex. You know, and I just want to say to the listeners, there's just so much 
in what Alex is saying here. There's so many pearls of wisdom that can be unpacked here. I just want to encourage you to listen to this recording more than once because uh, it'll just open up for you like a like a flower. There's a lot of gems here. So, uh, Alex, go ahead and go to that go to that second question about what's on the cutting edge for you these days. What are you most passionate about in your life right now? Well, we talked about it a little bit already, and that is the um, the components of co-working that can take place regardless of whether or not you're in a co-working space. Um, and I feel very fortunate to have had Indie Hall be both a place and a community of people that I get to spend my days with and have ev almost every day for the last eight years. It's b become another thing for me, and that is a laboratory for studying and learning how people work together and why they work together, even though they don't have a clear reason to work together. It's not like a company where we're all working towards the same goal. We're actually working towards very, in some cases, different goals, but there's clearly got to be something at play for people to not simply be working next to each other, but actually supporting each other in their endeavors. And if we can figure out what this, how, how and why this works, this seems very translatable. I mean, all the examples you gave earlier of the kinds of groups that frustrate you, I want to be able to share what we've learned and help people lead more effectively, help people build and run teams more effectively. If for, for me, success would be turning, you know, some number of the biggest companies in the world, maybe the biggest governments in the world onto some of our lessons for what it takes to actually work together and for that to become collaboration, not just working together, I feel like we will have created something very, very, very powerful. Um, so the thing that's cutting edge for me is in a lot of ways, closer study of what we already do and what works and why and what doesn't work and why. And then figuring out where we can translate that to. And so there have been some examples of, of things that we've experimented with um, uh, that are pretty kind of out of bounds of what you think of when you think of a co-working space. Um, and that's a mix of, you know, pop-up concept stuff for bringing different communities together outside of the physical co-working space uh, in our neighborhoods. Um, that's working again with corporations and governments. I spend a lot of my time these days on the road working with other people that, you know, they've read enough about what I've written or they've heard interviews like this one. They say, you know, this sounds like what I've been trying to do, but it sounds like you've actually figured out how to make it work. Can you help me? And so the fact that I get to share the lessons of what we've learned with other cities and help those other city people in other cities be more successful. Uh, means, you know, back to the, the explanation I gave earlier about open source, I could try and lock this stuff up and license it and franchise it. And that's just not really interesting to me at all because it puts me in the center as a sort of, um, as a sort of liability really is how I see it. I would much rather find ways to distribute and share. And I think that we live in a world full of people who stand to be better collaborators. And my, if I'm on a mission, it's to try and improve the quality 
uh, of the collaborations that anyone has access to, whether they work in a full-time job, whether they work in a co-working space, whether they're a student, whether they're, you know, traveling the world, it shouldn't matter. You should be able to have these kinds of experiences. Um, that's ultimately what I want to create. That's great. I, I really want to support you in that. I think you're onto something really powerful. And uh, are you open to a couple of suggestions? Yeah, absolutely. Always. Well, since you like the constellation metaphor, I had a uh, an idea that flashed through my consciousness while you were talking as sort of a could be the title of a book or it could be the title of a chapter in your book or it could be a title of a presentation that you make but I wanted to share it with you if you have a pen or something that what, yeah, yeah, yeah. what came to me is the sun is also a star Ooh, David that's great <laughs> and um, you know I, I I think that there are potential synergies for us maybe to do some work together because with my expertise in ontology, which is the study of being and the possibility of being for human beings and what we have been being and what we could be being and how we shift what we're being, you know, you have a sense of the relationship between what we're being and what we do and what we can do and how we show up. And uh, I'm open to you know, at other times having further conversations with you about how we might synergize. And then the other thought that came to me as you talked about the open source thing and about abundance and, 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 and maximizing the impact. One question that's always interesting to me is when you're functioning in a really enlightened way in a dysfunctional structure, it creates unique challenges. And one of the greatest dysfunctional structures we have right now is the current monetary economic system on the planet. And so one thing, we won't have time to get into it today, but one thing I would enjoy either having another conversation with you about and or having you include it in your writings or your speakings or your teachings would be how to be true to this abundant open source ethic while you're functioning in the current uh, dysfunctional um, economic and banking system that we have today. Yeah, yeah. I would that's, be very interested in that. Yep. That's a big question that a lot of creative people are dealing with, especially creative people that have um, wives and husbands and young children It's uh, have mortgages or have rent payments that have rents in the Bay Area. These are these are really real world issues that um, are going to need to be addressed unless there's some kind of divine intervention very soon or something, and the whole and the whole economic system implodes, which I'm open to. But in case it doesn't, um, these are interesting questions. And so, um, you know, I kind of feel like we've been a couple of jazz musicians here, just kind of. Uh, just kind of surfing on each other's energy. It's really been a delightful conversation. I, I, I would like to move it to a close by two things. One, giving you a chance to share anything you'd like to share in closing. And number two, to go over your contact, your name and your contact information for people. And we'll also include all of that in the show notes. Sure. So 
Uh, man, I could close on so many, so many thoughts. This has also been a really great conversation, and I agree. Uh, a good conversation is a lot like jazz music, us adding to each other and and riffing, and that's that's always a sign of of a good time in my mind. Um, if folks are, have enjoyed this, I do get to do this with other folks as well, um, and actually have a podcast of my own called the Co Working Weekly Show. Uh, which is in iTunes, and would love to have you pop over there, check it out, give it a listen, and um, let me know what you think. Just like this conversation, a lot of stuff not simply about co-working. Co-working is just the the context for lots of conversations. One of the things I'm very proud of about that show is we've been able to get folks on uh, whose voices are often not heard in the co-working world, including uh, members of our community, our, our staff, and things like that, researchers, there's a lot of really cool stuff in there, and I would uh, be happy to have folks come over and give it a listen. Um, contact information, uh, you mentioned on Twitter, is probably one of the best places to get a hold of me, at Alex Hillman, H-I-L-L-M-A-N, um, uh, is is a great way to reach me. Also, the my blog, DangerouslyAwesome.com, uh, right on the homepage is some – I throw up some recommended reading and, and other things that I think are a great starting point for people that are – interested in this stuff. Um, you know, I try and keep things a, a mix of practical, tactical, uh, but also the strategic, how, how to think, how to be, um, and, and how to learn. Because ultimately, if you copy what we do, I absolutely positively cannot guarantee the same results. What I can do is teach you how to think the way that we think um, and make decisions the way we make decisions. And maybe the results, the answers you come up with are different, but if they come from a similar process, which I'll be honest with you, the, the, there's one guiding force in every decision I make, and it's our members. The people in our community matter more than anything else. And it's surprisingly difficult sometimes to keep that in the field of vision. Um, but if you run a membership organization, even if you are part of a team, if you've, you're, you know, you've got a bunch of employees or you, you've got a staff, I think there's a lot of lessons in what happens when you when you keep them number one priority. How much easier lots of common challenges become, and we've got more stuff like that uh, on on dangerouslyawesome.com as well. Great. Anything else you'd like to share, or does that wrap it up for you? Well, if you're ever in Philadelphia, David or anyone listening, please stop by and visit us. We we are an actual place as well. Um, uh, we're right in Old City, which is uh, in historic Philadelphia. We're a couple blocks away from the Liberty Bell and all that good stuff. So if you're ever in Philadelphia, shoot us a message. Come by and say hello, give you a tour, show you around, get to meet some of the community at Indy Hall, and we'd love to uh, love to have you. One question about your uh, podcast, accessing your podcast. For people that have Android phones and don't have iTunes, are you also uploaded to Stitcher? Yes, we are. We are on Stitcher. Okay, and could you say the name of that podcast series again? Sure. It's the Coworking Weekly Show. You can also go to coworkingweekly.com slash show. Uh, that does redirect to iTunes, um, but if, if you're on an Android, you can type in Coworking Weekly and you'll find the show. Well, Alex, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been having a, a, just a delightful conversation with Alex Hillman, getting to know Alex and getting to know Coworking and taking a look at the impact that co-working can have on who we are, what we do, 
and how we show up in the world, our relationships. Uh, very exciting. I encourage you to follow up and uh, if you have an interest in co-working and to share this with others. So this is Dr. David Kamnitzer, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to CuttingEdgeDoc.com. That's CuttingEdgeDoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.